Come on up and proclaim God's word. Thank you very, very much. Fix. It's good to see you today. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, we'll be in verses 9 through 13. If you have your cell phones, you can look there too for your text. That's okay. This, this text is fun to preach, and it's also something I, I like about this is it's the easiest passage to pick an Old Testament and a New Testament reading from. Because in it, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and then later on, Paul quotes this passage in his letter to Timothy. So I think that's great. What we're seeing here in Matthew 9 is Matthew, the writer of this gospel, recounting the day that Jesus called him. And the text moves quickly to tell of a really interesting party that Jesus attended and how people viewed that. So let's read this text, follow along as I read Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? But when he, being Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a day to sing songs, a day to hear your word, a day to be together to worship. Would you speak to us now through the gospel? Would you send your Holy Spirit that, uh, that would soften our hearts to hear your words to us. God, would we be quickened to hope in your goodness and your mercy? And would would we be excited to go and follow you further and to love like you have loved? In your heavenly name we pray, amen. You know, I was thinking about this actually two days ago. January 8th, 2018, 1818 was the very first Bible study we ever had with RUF at Louisville, just last January, at the beginning of this year. And now, next Thursday is going to be the last Bible study we will do in 2018. But what was interesting, January 8th, our very first Bible study, we did this passage. This was the first thing I ever taught with our RUF group at UofL. And the reason being is, is when I got on campus and I started talking to students, a lot of my job, the first semester and still now, but it's really all I was doing last fall, is just finding college students say, hey, do you have a few minutes to talk and chatting for a while, learning about their lives? I would meet a lot of Christian students and ask them about their experiences. I would meet a lot of non-Christian students and ask them about their, their stories, you know, how have you come to unbelief and things like that. It's, it's fun to just go and talk to random people, though there is sort of a shamelessness that you have to attach to this. You just I just have to talk to a lot of random people every day. And I learn a lot, of, a lot of neat things, but one thing that was really consistent with talking to college students is the idea of the party. If you, remember, if you went to college, you might remember this. 
but especially freshmen, everyone's talking about, do you go to parties or not go to parties? Have you been to a party? Does, you know, a, a, a typical conversation will go, like I'll meet a, a, guy, a guy and say, well, tell me about your roommate. Well, my roommate's a nice guy. He does go to parties, though. Uh, or another girl will say, yeah, you know, I was a Christian in high school, uh, but then I got to college and, well, I do go to parties. And, and I kind of I had to jog my memory and realize, oh, you know what? In college, the word party said a lot about who you are and what kind of life you lived. I don't want to go down the road and explain whether that's right or not or that's fair, but it was just something I noticed. The participation in parties is something that college students really pay attention to. And in this story, we see Jesus attending something that might loosely be recognized as a party and probably not the kind of party that some of my students would necessarily want to attend. And it's a little jarring when you think about the fact that here we have Jesus feasting with some rough folks. And it tells us a lot about who Jesus is and and what his heart is like. It also tells us a lot about what his mission is for his time on earth. And that's why I called this I called this sermon Jesus Goes to a Party because it kind of it, it speaks to a college student. And it's true. We have Jesus going to a party here. And as we study it, I want us to think about what does this tell us about who Jesus is and what his mission is? And what does this tell us about the type of folks that we are or that we think we are? You might have a little, uh, in, your, in your bulletin, there's kind of a little outline. If you want to follow along, that's okay. But we're going to kind of look at two different movements happening in the story. One is Jesus and the bad folks. Jesus and the folks that, that the religious people didn't like, that were maybe in a lot of sin or kind of had a bad reputation. How does Jesus engage these people? And then we'll kind of look at the, the good folks, the people who had it together, the, the sort of religious authorities in town, the one that everyone sort of looked up to. How does Jesus engage those people? And then we'll kind of tie it together with how does Jesus treat us? So for this first part, we're going to talk about Jesus and the bad folks. And I'm just going to read a couple of these verses again to to jog our memories, and then we'll see how how Jesus engages people at a party. In verse 9, Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. So Matthew, this is the Matthew that wrote this this gospel, right? We we know where this is going. This is going to be, this guy is going to come to Christ. But where do we see him? First we see him, we we have to recognize that he's sitting at a tax booth. And, you know, we probably, our views on taxation is probably all over the place. But I'll tell you right now. The taxation that, that Matthew is participating in in this moment is not the good kind, especially not for Jewish people. Because the Romans had, had they, they were governing the Jews, they were in charge, and they would take taxes from them. And, and it was more of a taxation so that they wouldn't destroy them. This was, this was not where, they didn't have any sort of representation. The Romans would just come in and take their money and... More often than not, the tax collectors themselves would take more than they needed to. It was, it was a job that was very easy to use to exploit the Jewish people. 
You know, else, you know what else is interesting about Matthew? His other name we hear from him is Levi. Matthew is Jewish. He is a Jewish person who's taking taxes for the Roman government. If that doesn't shock you, it didn't shock me that first time I read it. I kind of had to do a little research. But this is the big deal. Matthew is someone who, he's Jewish. He should, he's, he's the one being exploited by the government. But you know what? He's found a fast way to cash in on the regime and exploit his brothers and sisters and be like, you know what? I can make some money if I call myself Matthew and take taxes at this booth. This is the kind of guy who has betrayed his faith and his family for a little extra money. Like, everybody would have probably not liked Matt. He's not somebody that you wanted to be in a relationship with. And here he is at the tax booth, and Jesus shows up. At this point, you know, we haven't been reading the whole Gospel of Matthew, but, you know, before this, Jesus has done some miracles. People know who Jesus is. His name is spreading. He has a little bit of fame. And you have to imagine at this moment that Matthew is just caught red-handed. He's at his tax booth. He's probably stealing some money from people. But he's definitely not living as he ought to live, right? And here comes this guy he's heard of, this Messiah guy, this guy doing all these miracles, shows up at his tax booth. And I can just imagine that, that Matthew is like, oh, oh, man, okay, here it comes. You got me. What do you want? You know, you're a religious guy. Religious people always give me grief for how I'm not living my life right. Just tell me what you got so I can take the slap on the wrist and get out of here. He sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he says to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. I don't know why Matthew followed Jesus. I don't know if he was afraid of Jesus or if he was interested or maybe he wanted to spend some time with Jesus. We don't really know, but we know that Matthew followed Jesus, and that was pretty risky. And, and what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus actually goes back to Matthew's house and we see Matthew's friends start coming over. Other people who probably had some, you know, some jobs that we wouldn't really want to talk about or reputations that we wouldn't want to have ourselves. What happened here is sort of a, the, un, the seedy underground world of town, you know, the people who know each other because they're all, they've, uh, my, my friend and I were reading this one time, and he said, these are people that have a dirtbag alliance. They're, like, they're probably all in that, involved in some stuff, and they all know each other through their sort of dealings, and they, the word gets out, hey, Jesus is at Matthew's house. Let's go and see what's going on. All these people take a risk, to, these bad folks take a risk to come spend some time with Jesus. Jesus, who is not at his house, or Mark's house, or Peter's house, where he's probably living, that he's in their house. He's, he's at the frat house at the party, to use a college illustration. And people are coming around, and what do we see that Jesus is doing? Jesus is reclining at table in the house. He's laying down next to the table, he's talking, he's got his, you know, he's probably got, the idea is he's got his shoes off, his hair down, and he's hanging out with these people. Who knows what they're talking about, but we do know that he is spending time in the house of these bad folks. What 
we see Jesus going into the underground world of the bad folks. He's pursuing them there. And in spending time with him, do you know what he's doing? He's dignifying them. He is a, a famously religious person. And he's got his shoes off, eating dinner with them at their house. I wonder if, in, if, if they've ever had a religious person come into their home like this and, and, and relax with them. But before we go on to talk about the interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the big idea, you know, and there's a connection to the whole biblical story here, we're going to go there in just a second. But we need to pause and see what Jesus does with bad folks. He begins with love. He, before sharing the gospel with them, before rebuking them for their sin, which we, we assume probably happens, he enters into their space with them. He shows them kindness. He accepts their hospitality. And he enjoys them. Why would Jesus do this with people who do bad things, people who don't deserve it. The reason is because Jesus loves unlovable people and his mercy is always surprising. And the history of the world, the history of the gospel, is a story telling over and over and over again about how Jesus surprises people, how God surprises the world with mercy for those who really don't deserve it. There's a story that I've heard in a million sermons, and I almost don't want to tell it because you've probably heard it a few times before, but it's so good. I, that's why people tell it. But it's the story of Tony Campolo in the Greasy Spoon at Midnight. Has anyone heard of this before? Okay, you might have if I keep going, but if you haven't, I've, I, I, uh, I'm the first person to tell it to you, and that's really exciting. Uh, Tony Campolo was at this... Was at a Greasy Spoon Diner. He was speaking at this event. I think it was in Hawaii. But he was in, it was in the middle of the night, little after midnight, and he is having like a, a midnight waffle with some of his friends. And as he's sitting there in this restaurant in the middle of the night, uh, two, two prostitutes come into the restaurant, and they sit down at the table behind him. And as he and his friend are eating, he, he can't help but hear the women talking, and one of them says, oh, you know what? Tomorrow is my 39th birthday. And the other woman says, says oh, that is, that's great. We should do something. And the woman says, no, we can't. I've never had a birthday party anyway, so what's another year without one? A few minutes later, the two women get up and they leave the restaurant. And Tony goes over to the counter and he asks, uh, you know, do you know who these people are? And, and the, this woman working on the counter says, oh, yeah, those people come in here every night around this time to eat. One of them is named Agnes, and that's the girl whose birthday it is. And Tony says, if I got a cake and in, invited a couple of my friends, do you think we could give her a, just a little birthday cake tomorrow night? She'll come in tomorrow night, right? And the waitress is like, yeah, she comes in about 1.30 a.m. every single night. And Tony says, okay, I'm going to come back with a cake. So the next day, he does sort of some of his engagements, and he gets a cake made that says, happy birthday, Agnes, on it. And he brings it, well, beforehand, um, word must have gotten out. Somebody told somebody that 
this was going to happen for Agnes. And around midnight, Tony gets to the little diner with the cake, and every prostitute in Honolulu is there. Almost 100 women are in this restaurant, and they're all waiting for Agnes to arrive. And when she does, the whole place bursts into singing, and they bring out this cake. And in the midst of it, she starts weeping, and she won't let anybody cut the cake because she's never seen a cake with her name on it before. And it does something to her. It does something to her to see a celebration with her name on it. And uh, it's a little awkward as she says, nobody cut my cake, but everyone starts hanging out. And at some point, Tony stands up and says, you know, let's sing happy birthday again to Agnes. And he says, if everyone's okay with it, I would like to just pause for a moment and pray for her. And everyone's a little uncomfortable. And somebody says, I didn't know you were religious. What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony says, I suppose I belong to the sort of church that throws parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. And I tell you this story because every time I hear it, I am reminded again that this is what our God is like because we see it here. Jesus is throwing and celebrating a party with those who don't deserve it. It's surprising. It's unusual. It's maybe a little shocking. And there might be a little seed in your heart like there is in mine even now as I preach it. But, but where is the call to repentance? Where is, where is the next move? Like, I, I see the cake, I see the wine, I see the party. Like, where does it go from there? And it does go somewhere. But let us remember that Jesus always begins his interaction with sinful people, and that's us, with a surprising mercy. His love even though it includes challenge, it always begins with welcome. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's welcoming unlovable people. This is what Jesus does with the bad folks. He shows them surprising mercy. Uh, word got out about this party too, and the Pharisees heard about it. In verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, they didn't, even go to, they didn't even go to the guy. They went to his friends. Why does your teacher eat? Why does he hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Why, why is this guy who you've attached yourself to, why is he with this crew of people? Why is he with the bad folks? This is how the Pharisees reacted. And we shouldn't be surprised at the way the Pharisees reacted to that. In Pharisee culture, who you associate with is everything. Therefore, because Jesus associated with sinners, he probably was a sinner too. And therefore, his disciples, by following a sinner, are at risk of sullying themselves by being associated with Jesus. We're not quite the same as Pharisees. But I confess that I think about who people associate with all the time. I get nervous when students I love go to parties. And not just because of the decisions they'll make there, but partly because in my heart is the very real fear 
if they are associated with sinfulness in some way, if they're even present there, that's going to ruin their reputation. People are going to find out they go to RUF, and I'm not going to want to be associated with my own students. That happens in my heart. And we see that happening in the Pharisees here, this, this fear that even being with these people makes you unclean before God. You're doing something dangerous, Jesus, and your disciples, by coming here, by being with these people, you are ruining their hope of salvation by, ruin, by making a shipwreck of their faith, by, just by where you are right now. You're not above reproach, Jesus. You're very under, you're very below reproach right now. It's, and I think it's important that we begin to see that what the Pharisees are showing is their pride, right? The Pharisees were, were generally people who, while they confessed that they did sin, they did enough. They had 600 and something laws. They did enough that they believed, well, we have done what is necessary for God to count us as clean. And as long as we keep doing those things and avoiding those people, then we are going to be okay. You see, the, the Pharisees believed they kind, of had, they kind of had God in handcuffs. Like, we are following your laws. We are keeping ourselves clean. Therefore, you have to love us and not them. And so it must be very confusing for them to see Jesus, a man who calls himself Yahweh, spending time with these people. And Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have need of a physician. Which might, in a sense, make you think that Jesus is saying, these, y'all are well, y'all are fine, y'all are good, these people are not. But that's not what Jesus is saying, because then he quotes in the next verse, Hosea. And this blows the whole thing open, guys. This may be one of the greatest moments in the gospel. I love what's about to happen. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And the phrase go and learn is a, is a rabbinical direction. It's what a teacher says when it's like, open your books to page 61. Jesus is saying, as, a, as your teacher, I'm about to instruct you in the law. Go and learn. And they were like, what? Go and learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Why would Jesus say that to them? And what does that verse mean? Well, first, Jesus would say to them because he is trying to show the disciples who view themselves as the good folks the, the folks who've done what it takes to be good, who have God in handcuffs. He's saying to them, you've misunderstood your Bibles. You've misunderstood the story that was being told. He's saying to them that it's, it's not that you guys are religious enough. or It's not that you guys are like super religious. You're not religious enough. You don't get the faith enough. There's... In, in all of your law-keeping Pharisees, there's, you are missing something huge. And this is what, what does it mean? So Jesus, what does it mean? You said go and learn what this means. It means this. 
In Hosea, we see, um, we see a prophet be called to, to love a woman who leaves him and leaves him and leaves him and leaves him. And, and, and he's continually called to go and sing sweet songs to her and celebrate her and bake a cake for her with her name on it, though she continues to leave him. And, and the image that Hosea, that God is showing us through Hosea is, and, you know, that book goes way deep in all this stuff. If you want some theology, you got to go read Hosea. It's crazy. You can ask Lee about all that stuff. Uh, but the big idea in Hosea is, is God is saying, I am the husband who bakes cakes for his wife, and you are the wife who is left and is left and is left and is left. And so what Jesus is saying I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He is saying to the Pharisees, do you not know that every party I have thrown for you is a party of mercy, not because you have sacrificed sufficiently for me? These people, he's saying to the Pharisees, these folks in the room are no different than you. And what I am doing for them in this very moment is what I have always done for my people. You see, Jesus is showing that his surprising mercy is the only kind of mercy there has ever been. The Pharisees weren't wrong that, sinners were, that, that the sinners were unworthy. Of course they were unworthy. They were wrong that they were worthy. And they were wrong that Jesus pays attention to who's worthy and who's not worthy, based on who does what and who's good enough. They were wrong that Jesus is, is sitting, like, waiting for people to make the appropriate sacrifices so that he can bake the cake for them and give them the hug and love them and, and call them his children. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, I desire mercy. And, the, and, and that has been the song that I have been singing since the founding of creation. And it is the story that your Bible has been telling over and over again. Jesus is saying, don't you know that this is what I always do? I... I always show surprising mercy to sinners, and you would know me if you knew that. And perhaps it revealed something at the heart of the Pharisees that I find myself learning about myself continually. And that is that at the heart of my pride, the heart of, my, the heart of our belief that we've somehow earned God's favor is the fear that we might lose it. At the heart of the Pharisees' pride was the fear that if they made the same mistakes that these tax collectors made, or they even associated with them, that they might lose the love of God. And this is what Jesus is showing us here. There really are no bad folks and good folks. There's people broken by sin. And Jesus shows surprising mercy to us, people broken by sin. And that Jesus' call to us is to accept his mercy. In RUF, we talk about the basic building blocks of, Christ of Christianity. Uh, the lingo uses the principles. But what it means is like, Christianity has a lot in it, but these are the basic kind of meat and potatoes of the Christian life. And that, it, those are scripture, how we know what we know, justification, how we become God's children, and sanctification, how we grow 
And one of the ways we talk about this, especially about justification and sanctification, is showing that confession of sin and repentance is sort of the normal daily task of Christians. You notice a lot of the songs we sing here about mercy and sinners and calling ourselves sinners and, and asking for mercy. We don't do that because like, we feel like, well, if we beat ourselves hard enough on the back, God will hear And we're not trying to convince God that we think we're bad, but rather because we believe, as this story longs longs for us to believe, and as Matthew pushes us to believe, that the daily life of the Christian is to say, God is a God who shows surprising mercy, and I am one who needs surprising mercy. Let me name that and go and take it with Jesus. And this is what we say when we say uh, this is the gospel. The gospel is this, and it's the last verse. For I, Jesus, came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the knowledge that we are sinners would be a heavy weight to bear if we did not have a God who desires mercy. And we have a God who desires mercy. Our sins are forgiven in him and... We can, it, we can celebrate and we can feast with him knowing that we are the bad folks whom he desires to love. And then we can tack on this. We can tack on this. Um, as God's children, as people who have received mercy, what would it look like for us to go and find those who long for such mercy, whose only community is an underground community of doing bad things, and, and throw for them a party that is surprisingly merciful, that draws them towards the God who loves to save sinners. What if our relationships were a place where we were proclaiming our sicknesses to each other and running to the physician together. I like to think that our, I want our RUF at UofL to be what Laura and I have called a hospital for broken people, a hospital for broken hearts. Where we're not pretending we're not sick, but we're also not living like there's not hope, that there's not a great physician right here in our midst. And what we're doing in our UF, and what I long for my students to see, is that we are a people proclaiming surprising mercy and running to the one who loves to show it. There is um, there's a, a short story by Flannery O'Connor. Um, yes, grew up in Alabama, deep south English major. I was like required to read Flannery O'Connor to get my Christian, Southern Christian bona fides. And she wrote this story called Revelation, which is brilliant. And it tells the story of a woman named Miss Turpin. The majority of the story is Miss Turpin is in the waiting room of a doctor's office. And she's looking around the room and she's kind of talking about, well, you know, this person is, this person is, is too skinny. This person's too big. This person's too poor. This person's too greedy. And she's kind of going around saying about what's wrong with everybody. And it, it gets kind of ugly, especially... The ugliest part is she keeps, she keeps saying in the quiet of her mind, oh, I am so thankful that the Lord made everything just so. 
and that he made me just so, with just enough, and just enough joy, and just enough love. And really, it's a story of her going around talking about how bad everyone is, and how good she is, and how she's so thankful for the Lord for giving her so much goodness. And in the end of the story, she's outside, uh, spoiler alert, she's hosing down some pigs, um, because she believes that pigs ought to be clean, and they're, yeah, she, she, she's, at one point she's judging people whose pigs play in the mud. She's like, our pigs never play in the mud. Uh, I haven't raised pigs, but I feel like pigs are allowed to be in the mud. And she's out there hosing down her pigs, and there's thunder, and she gets struck by lightning, and she falls to the ground. And she looks up, and I wrote down what, she, what uh, Flannery O'Connor wrote. As she falls down, she looks up, and she sees in the heavens a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of poor black people in clean robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those, like herself, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. Yet she could also see by their shocked and altered faces even these virtues were being burned away. And that's the end of the story. The things that we cling to, to say, ah, look, I do this, and this is what would make God love me. how it makes God loves us. Since the beginning of the Bible, through all the story of Christianity, God has desired mercy for sinners, and he has shown it. And our joy, the things that should cause us to clap and leap like frogs, is that we have a God who loves us, and we don't have to be afraid of messing that up. We don't have to be afraid of sullying that. Rather, we clap and sing and leap like frogs to Jesus, who holds us and he cleans us. He's the one that keeps us safe. He's the one that keeps us whole. Those the last couple sentences I'm saying. Our, our mission statement for RUF is reaching students for Christ and equipping them to serve. And I spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time talking about those first few words, reaching students for Christ. It does mean doing evangelism and, and bringing people converted to Christianity, but the image to it is bringing college students to this person and letting him do the work in their hearts. That's what we do. We bring college students to this person who's reclining at this table in this story who loves to show surprising mercy. Let's close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God unlike any other. Certainly not like the kind of God that I or anyone else would be, who shows mercy to those who doesn't deserve it, who shows love to those who think they do deserve it, and draws them to a place of joy in being forgiven. God, forgive us and draw us into you. In your name we pray, amen.